This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about the world of books and reading. This is episode 333, recording on Thursday, October 3rd, 333 on October 3rd. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I am here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. You guys may not, some, some of you may have heard Vanessa on, you've been on other shows. Yeah, so I host uh, Read Harder for all of our insiders, so they will know me pretty well by now. But I've, yeah, I've been on all the books, I've been on Get Booked, I've been in a few places. And you're a new Portland uh, emigre. Yes, I've, uh, <laughs> I keep joking that I have a vacation home in Portland because I've had to <laughs> travel to San Diego pretty consistently since moving mm. here, and I just moved here in July, but it's, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Settling in j- just in time for the rain. So we got, I got to pick your brain about a whole bunch of stuff, um, mm-hmm. because you are until July, and even a little bit after, an independent bookseller. Yes, totally. A very proud one. And we've had independent booksellers on staff before, but they've kind of, like, the half-life of their independent bookstoreness has aged out over time. Like, Jen, <laughs> yeah. and, Jen and Amanda um, worked at independent bookstores for a while. Rebecca worked at Barnes & Noble for a while. We've had librarians. But you kind of get, I don't know, amoebaized into the book right staff, and you become a media person sure. after a while. So we got to, while the picking is still good, we need to pick your brains uh, about the state of independent books. Selling bookshop.org, which I don't think you, you were out. I think on vacation or PTO or doing other things when that news broke and either you didn't chime in or were loudly silent on the issue. So, um, <laughs> no, definitely <I'm> gonna... <laughs> was traveling. <laughs> okay. And um, afterwards, like I think talk, I talked to Jen about it because I felt like, mm. <laughs> hey guys, remember that thing you talked about two weeks ago? Okay, cool. So um, yeah, so I definitely talked to Jen, but yeah, I mean, I, I have feelings. Cool. Um, before we get into all that, let's do a sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, a little feedback um, for which Vanessa is not culpable, but Rebecca and I am, or, or at least answerable to some degree. Got a couple emails, people not loving our take on Macmillan's throttling of ebook lending. Um, nothing, n- no new information really, but basically underlying the point that it's not equitable for people who maybe can't afford to go buy the book new. To, to get them to have to wait for four months before there's a full retinue of copies available outside of the, the, the first and only copy that's available for the first four months. 
saying, you know, we're maybe we're being a little classist, a little elitist. Maybe I, I just don't know what I don't know what our expectation of what a library should be. Is it that you basically can get the same books everyone who's going to pay for the books for free when they want them immediately? Or is it something other than that? Because really then it's just a difference of degrees. If it's not every book's gonna be available to you immediately without waiting, then it's just a matter of how long is it reasonable to wait. Um, I think Macmillan might be making a mistake by having only one copy available for four months because people are going to be like, I can't get it. They don't care. They're not going to wait around for four months, and they're not going to go buy it. That I'm not super convinced that Macmillan knows what it's doing. I think they think they know what they're doing, but I'd sure love to see the numbers behind it. I don't know if Rebecca and I were being dismissive of people with fewer resources. I use, I'm a heavy library power user, but as an example, uh, I've gotten, and I said on this last week's show, I'm used to waiting like really legitimately waiting at the library using Libby for Multnomah County Libraries. I uh, Oh, we were saying we're doing Shawshank Redemption. Rebecca and I are recording our episode tomorrow. So we're reading Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption and watching the movie. So like, great. The book's been out for a million years. It's a novella in one, a 1983 collection by Stephen King. The, the digital hold was 12 weeks for a 30-some-odd-year-old book, and the audio hold was equivalent. So it's not like backlist books are super accessible either. I'm just not sure what what's reasonable here. My sense is Macmillan's making some available. They're reasonable four months later. They're available four months later. I guess I'm okay with that. Would I prefer? They're all available instantly in copious copies, enough to serve everyone's desire immediately. I guess I would love that in an ideal world, but that that's not the world we live in. So I, I'm not sure. I hear you guys. I'm just not sure what's reasonable. Um, there's really no... It's funny. There's really no industry I can think of like this where you're a four, these big for-profit conglomerates compete with free social services for essentially, I don't know, luxury. They're not really luxury items, but non-necessities. You know, it's not food and water. It's, it's can you get an ebook of a sci-fi fantasy trilogy installment uh, right away? It's just an interesting um, situation, Vanessa. You, you're, you're throwing to this completely cold. <laughs> um, I guess... One person that might stand to benefit from Macmillan withholding those books from the libraries would be independent bookstores. Do you have any sense of it? Would people come in and say the book was too on long, uh, the hold was too long, so I'm going to go ahead and buy it? Do people do that? Um, they they do, um, but I don't know that it is uh, like the overwhelming majority. I'd say it's actually pretty in the minority because there's obviously you know many different reasons why we we borrow from libraries. You know, one it's just it's it's a great resource, and obviously it's wonderful if you're a voracious reader not to have to spend money on every single book that you may or may not even end up liking or trying. And I totally get that. And then there's, you know, the folks who do it because it really is cost prohibitive to them to have to pay for books. Like it's just not in their, you know, discretionary income. So the people that do have the income, but are just kind of like, eh, I don't feel like paying for it. Yeah. They would come in and like, Oh, the hold on, you know, next year in Havana is 72 weeks. Like I'll just buy it. <laughs> that happened a lot. Um, but I don't know that it was an overwhelming majority. I do think a piece of this is just, Part of it, I think, is just as simple as it's change. Like it's um, if it, the system has always been the other way around, and so when that suddenly gets ripped yeah. from you, I think that's always just going to be something people feel salty about. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought about the movie comparison a lot. Cause like you said, when a movie comes out, it's not like it's available somewhere else for free. But I guess the difference for me feels like is like it's it's only in theaters for a long time, and so then yeah. you have to wait to watch it. But I don't know, the library model feels different, and I do think the optics of this, whether or not they actually make sense for them from a financial perspective, are, I don't know, I, I just hear, hear like nothing but negative feedback, and that alone no. may need to drive that decision. 
Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, is it worth, to McMillan's bottom line, whatever net margin they're going to make on this, is that worth more than the bad publicity they're getting? Now, like I've said before in the show, and Rebecca both said, no one knows who publishers are. So maybe no one even knows that it's Macmillan that's under on hold for some book for a million years. I have no idea. For sure. That my, the Multnomah County Library System was basically, I've gotten several e-blasts saying this is unacceptable. Like they're really fired up about this. I guess, I guess if you're a librarian, you're concerned, look, beyond the moral, moral reason of like you're in the public, you're a public servant and you want your patrons to have as much access as they can, there is a sense in which the utility of the library or the perception of the utility of the library could be undermined if people are like, I got to wait a billion years. I can't even get this particular book. I guess I feel like that horse is already out of the barn. But as tools like Libby do make it so easy and convenient and the UI is good to get digital materials from your library, it competes in a real, I'll speak for myself, the audiobooks on Libby compete in a very real way with my audiobook purchases at other places. Like, Same. I will check Libby first. And if it's not there, I will either not read it or I'll wait to buy it on Audible with one of my monthly credits. But if it is there, I'll choose it there. So I'd be curious. I don't know. Maybe it's a thing where there is some pattern that has gotten a little bit out of hand in the publisher's mind of how quick audiobook adoption has happened. It's digital and combining with the ease of use of the digital lending platforms has maybe sucked up more of the demand for those titles than than I would have thought. Um are you so you're a Libby user? What do you do what do you do with it? Uh all of it. <laughs> oh really? Mainly, you do all of it, mainly yeah. audio actually, yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, a lot right. of it is definitely um needing to read for work driven. Yeah, but right. uh yeah, no, it's just otherwise I would be spending so so much and it is it's an invaluable service. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, did you did you have Libby in San Diego? I don't know the penetration of Libby in the various public library systems. I did mainly because I, you know, riot. <laughs> so the minute mm-hmm. I heard about it, I was like, well, let me check this out. But I will say of our two, you know, there's there's two main library systems in San Diego. There's the public and the county, and the public is the one that I access, and I think a, a lot of people do most frequently, and mm-hmm. none of their, they were not tapped into Libby. It was the other, the county library system, which I just used less, and I did find less availability. Whereas when I moved to Portland, funny story, I went there like super prepared to have to prove my residency because in California, (laughs) it's a thing. (laughs) Like they need a utility bill and for you to Mm. prove that you live anyway. So I went there and they're like, yeah, no, just sign here. Um, And when I was done, they actually asked me, do you have a few minutes for us to talk about some of the services that we offer? And I said, sure, even though I'm like, I know how to use library. (laughs) Mm. But no, they actually did sit there and say, hey, have you heard of Overdrive? Have you heard of Libby? And, and, you know, tapped me in and there was a person behind me who was like, oh, wait, I can use an app to get audiobooks. And then we both kind of, you know, looped her in. So mm-hmm. that has never happened to me in San Diego where someone actually sat down and said, like, do you know about this service? It comes with your library card. And uh, yeah, that alone has to be like a more frequency of use thing. Yeah. I mean, if the supply is better and the friction to get them is low, then of course consumption is going to go up. Um and I, I just think that's, I just, I don't know that there's any way around that. Um, I do think if we Thanos snapped our fingers and the world we woke up in tomorrow was, we were just used to books come to library six months after they're released for purchase. I think we'd all be okay with that, you know, like their movies. I think you're right that if there's something psychological about undermining libraries and what the mission of the library is and what the public good of making books available to people writ large is, is that day and date, 
there should be a whole bunch, or as much as the library can afford or wants to afford. Yeah. Um, I think libraries being told that they can't even spend what they would spend on a title is a new kind of dynamic. Um, and I, I wonder if it'll, if it'll hold up. Um, I haven't, again, the wait lists for stuff I want to read tend to be so long anyway that I don't even notice if it's, I won't even know if it's a Macmillan title or not. Are you noticing like an audiobook you're looking to read? Aren't you seeing, are you seeing multiple weeks? For everything at this point? like Just about. I was very surprised the other day when it wasn't. And to be fair, I think I was picking something a little bit arcane. <laughs> but yeah. overall, yeah, I'm like, okay, well, I I definitely can't go on there wanting or expecting to have something no. that I, like, have a deadline on that is, you know, a week. Like, I need to give it plenty, plenty of lead time. Yeah, I feel like I'm doing some sort of, like, farming situation where I've got to plant the seeds or till the field like six years before I'm going to use it to grow whatever. Cause I'm like, I've got things no, really. on hold in like tears. So like, okay, this is going to be six weeks or so. Then I've got to level it like 10 weeks and 12 weeks. Cause otherwise I, I take a whole bunch. I put holds on a bunch of things. And they all come at once and then they expire. Cause I don't get to them. This so this happens to me know, all the some, time. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of like, it's like how you layer um, bonds when you're retired to a various maturities. So they come <laughs> due at different times. It's, it, it takes a lot of work, but again, the service is so good and the price is right that it's well within my threshold of annoyance um, to deal with it. Now, having said that, I can also go afford to buy books that I really want to read. Like, Libby is only Libby in the library is only a part of my reading life and yeah. how I acquire books. Though it's a meaningful one, but I can still go buy the Kindle version if I want something. So I can go to Libro FM or Audible, um, or I can go to Pals uh, or Amazon to get a to print copy. And I do all those things. Um, but my my port of first resort is Libby, and if that's true, then it's easier to sympathize with Macmillan. I think actually in this particular case. Um, people like me, even people like me with a disposable income to buy the book new are going to Libby first because it's in my phone. It's in my pocket. I think of it. I can look at it right there. Um, and that's very hard to, to compete with. So I'm not sure. I, I, I feel like I'm saying the things we said already just louder and with a different person. And maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's enough. Yeah, I always, this is so silly, but I do think of like, and this is maybe a specific example, but I, you know, worked at the ND and so we were kind of in an interesting neighborhood that has for show been gentrified. (laughs) It Mm. is a really beautiful community, but you know, back when I was a kid, that was like the part of town that people felt kind of meh about. And so we're still surrounded by an interesting like network of schools. We're within like the zone of a really like bougie private school and then like a pretty decent, I think, either charter or or just private like kids school. And then there's more of a low income elementary. And we often do events or did events with that low income elementary school. And, you know, kids would come in and look at the books and their parents would look at the prices. And well, mm. you know, pricing is a whole different shenanigan. Um, a lot of them would say, well, do you do ebooks? No, we don't. Um, and I, I just kept looking at this one little group of children in particular where three or four of the girls were talking about the new like Emily Winsnap books. And one of the other little girls was like, well, maybe I can get it from the library. And I just think of those kinds of families. Right. Like, yes. And obviously physical versus ebook is different. I don't know how many kids are doing ebooks, but for people where it is a huge consideration and I am a person for whom, you know, my childhood was like that. I, we didn't come from particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, great means, we humble means for sure. Uh, knowing that I had to wait on something that I did want to read, you know, while it might not have been the end of the world, would have felt like a bit yeah. of a slap. And yeah. I, it's easy for me not to think about that now because I have that income to do it. But yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's exactly the point our listeners were 
um, a couple of the people that wrote us was trying to remember. It's like, it's one thing to say, well, you can wait and it's no big deal, except that it makes you feel different. It can make you feel different to have to wait, to know you, have, you don't have a recourse. Like, it's easy for me to say, ah, I can just wait yep. because I also don't have to wait if I don't want to. Um, on the other hand, if it's always available to everyone whenever they want it, I don't think that's what we're looking for either. So I guess that's where my, my shoulders are going up and kind of shrugger emoji made real is between always available instantly and having to wait forever. What's the right balance? Where's the sweet spot? Yeah, no, I, I don't know that. where the sweet spot really sweet spot really is. And maybe that's what this discussion is about um, in, in a larger way. Um, this is a, a, a listener emailed this to us. So it's not really follow up, but um, we're not going to spend a lot of time doing it, except I wanted to bring it to people's attention in case they want to go sign the petition. So last month, um, the Mid-Continent Public Library's Colburn Road branch in Lee Summit, Missouri, which is not far from where I grew up and Rebecca grew up too, hosted a program called Trans 101. The program was created in response to community need and was designed to provide education about what it means to be transgender. Um, This is a change.org petition. Basically, there was some blowback and the library shut it down. Um, And the person here, I don't have the name in front of me, Emily Ferrarini, Ferrarini, sorry, Emily, for butchering your name, um, started a petition to get people to say, we want to bring this particular course and this library back, um, this kind of use uh, we want to see the library go after. It has 1,139 out of 1,500 desired petition signatures. Um, You can read more about it there. But um, thanks. Um, I think Jessica, Jennifer Crispin, pardon me, sent this to us. Thank you, Jennifer, for bringing it to our attention. Please go sign that if it's something you're interested in. Okay, that's enough follow-up. Uh, time for us. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sponsor. Okay. Well, it's going to be library day here. I got an indie bookseller. We're going to do all library stuff. No, let's do this first. <laughs> Book, bookshop.org. It's not on the agenda, but I, told, I warned you. You did. Um, that this might be something... You heard Jen and I talk about it. I think you heard Rebecca and I talk about it. What did we get right? What do we get wrong? What do we even not know we didn't know about Bookshop.org and what indies are dealing with when it comes to online commerce? A lot of it, I think, is something that Jen kind of already hit on the head. We're like indie bookstore buddies. We talk about our days all the time, although mine are a lot less removed (laughs) than she (laughs) was. Um, I do think that, I mean, I feel, yeah, like you may have said a lot of this, but I the way things stand, unless publishers drastically change their discounting and pricing to you know booksellers, you're just not going to compete with Amazon on that particular level when it comes to like ebook availability, but specifically with with pricing, right? Just pricing is always mm-hmm. going to be a factor for some people, and I don't know that that's what like if you're a dedicated Amazon user and you're into the convenience of the two day shipping and getting books at this specific price. And that's all you're thinking about. I don't know that bookshop is going to do anything for you, Mm -hmm. but for folks who are out there, whether it's because you are in a book desert or you are just, yeah, like that 
there is a tide, I think, that's starting to change a little bit with respect to Amazon's business business practices. Yeah. And there are a lot of folks out there who are like, yeah, I don't want to shop from Amazon, but also I don't have an indie. I don't shop at an indie. I'm not dedicated to one. But like, and maybe they're not even thinking indie bookstores, period, so much as just not Amazon. And that's mm-hmm. for that particular crowd. If, you know, someone like Powell's on the Strand is likely completely and totally happy with their online process. And like bookshop.org says, that's not who they're going after. Like if you're happy, stick with what you got. But if there is someone out there who's just like, I'm looking for an alternative and indie bound, like we said, is like kind of been a little clunky. (laughs) And then if you, I I think that's charitable, but yes, (laughs) yeah, it's very charitable. But for, you know, I, I saw the line on there about, well, the bookstagrammers can, can link. Cause yeah, that's kind of the thing. Now, if you're linking to a product who you're linking to, you're linking to Amazon, right? Right. So for that sect of the population and really just trying to – I don't know that, again, it's trying to apples to apples compete so much as just provide an alternative for people that are wanting to mm-hmm. shop and you know consciously in the sense that some of us are just, just take issue with Amazon's practices yeah, right. as convenient as they've made it to shop with them. Then I think that could be pretty great. And I, I even called my local indie that I used to work at and said, like, hey, are you guys in on this yet? And they, um as many of you know, they had some issues this year with Seth having open heart surgery. And so they've got a lot on their plate, but they are just now like going off to it or they came back from a trade show where they got the information. They're like, Hey, this, this is something that I think we're looking into. So, yeah, a lot of I don't you tell said. tales out of school um, necessarily, but um, one question I pondered about out loud, because this is what you do on a podcast like this is um, I asked if people who worked in independent bookstores were comfortable saying, would doubling your current e-commerce revenue be meaningful? And I didn't get any responses. Maybe people didn't know or didn't want to say or whatever, which is totally fine. I mean, again, for your bookstore, do you have a sense of how meaningful online orders were for your bookstore? Are we going from like zero to one or is it like trying to go from one to 10 in terms of scale? Do you have any sense of that? I, I do. Ours is a little bit of a unique situation in that the bookstore is really new. It just opened, right. Uh, right. you know, they only took ownership of, there was a, sh- a shop before there that, that sold books. They were there for a very long time, but it was like books and other eccentricities. So they've only really been, you know, under their name for, I think since October, 2017. Mm-hmm. So there's that that I need to throw in there to frame my answer. But um, yeah, like if we doubled it now, com- like if you'd asked me a year ago, like would doubling your e-commerce, <laughs> like it'd be like, great. So we had four orders this month. Sweet. <laughs> um, you know, and not to say that we don't have a lot of in-person business. We do, but like online was just, it's a very like tight little community. So people are like, why am I going to order sure. online from you when I can literally walk down the street? Mm-hmm. Um for better or worse, in light of what happened to the bookstore with all of the stuff we went through this right. year, we are on a lot of people's radar and now get a decent chunk of online orders. And seeing that yeah. double, I think, might be very meaningful. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Um, the other part that um, I don't know if this was in a listener email or in a Slack or whatever, I'm sorry to whoever made this point, is I think you're right. And by you're right, saying I'm right, because I've said this before, and Rebecca and Jen have also, like, we feel like, look, there's always been since the beginning of Amazon being a thing in the world of books, blowback of a certain kind from various quarters for various reasons, some of which I agree with, some of which I am less amenable to, but it's been a part of the conversation. It does feel like of late there is a different sentiment that's more broad-based on any different kind of industry that maybe Amazon is not the best thing in the world for everyone in the world writ large. Like 
the best thing I think going for Amazon right now is how much everyone hates Facebook. <laughs> I think actually, yep. like they, Facebook's providing a lot of cover for the Amazons and Twitters and Googles of the world. I'm not sure it's always going to be that way. But if there is a turning of the tide, maybe a bookshop.org situation will coalesce the interest in a good feeling and affection people have for independent bookstores. The other part, though, that someone mentioned, and again, the mysterious, brilliant stranger, I'm so sorry to forget your name or who you were. Do people not know Barnes & Noble exists and has a pretty decent website? Like, It's not just that you're looking for an Amazon alternative, but you're looking for an Amazon alternative that's not Barnes & Noble as well. So I I guess when I'm starting to drop the pies of potential customers in my mind for bookshop.org, it feels like a lot of the wedge is already taken. The the lowest hanging fruit seems to me to be people who have an independent bookstore they like, but also like shopping online. They don't want to drive even 12, 15 minutes to get there and back, which is bad for the environment and it takes time and so on and so forth. You want the book, you don't mind paying the full price, show up at your door, bada bing, bada beep, bada boop. That seems to me like where the lowest hanging fruit is. But the next fruit on the tree is a lot higher on the tree. Like there's not there's not like six feet fruit and then like eight feet fruit. It's like (laughs) six feet fruit and like forty five feet fruit. And it feels like whatever is next in that list is like people who don't shop at or don't want to shop at Amazon, but also don't really care about an independent bookstore for whatever reason. They're going to go to bookshop.org rather than Barnes & Noble, which can do affiliate link, and it has a bunch of things, and the, free, and the free shipping on orders of 35 and so does do some discounting. And there are e-books and audiobooks like, boy, it seems like you're also competing with that level of the, the customer base too. And how are you going to leapfrog them is almost entirely dependent on wanting to support an indie at basically the morality tax we talked about last time, which people might want to do that. Maybe I'm, going to, maybe I'm wrong here. But I just start doing market segmentation. I'm just like, I just don't know um, how much is there. So that the Barnes & Noble being already an alternative to Amazon that has feature parity and better with Bookshop.org, frankly. Um, what, what's better about Bookshop.org rather than Barnes & Noble? The only thing it has is that good feeling of, of, of independent bookstores, which has been the lifeblood of physical bookstores um, over the last five or six years especially. But does that translate into e-commerce sales? I'm just very interested um, to see what happens. As an independent bookseller, are, would you be, are you concerned at all or were, are the owners of your store concerned? Like there's this, this third-party middleman entity that we're relying upon to facilitate these practices? Like that, that's, that, that's taking the indie out of indie to some degree, um, which might be good and necessary, but it does seem like a kind of a paradox of some kind. Yeah, I asked, um, not even just the indie, but just in general, with kind of picking people's brains, and I specifically tried to pick people that are not quote-unquote book people, <laughs> like right. that yeah. maybe just kind of read casually or whatever, specifically with the question first about Barnes & Noble. Um, and I, if, I could be wrong and off base here, but the type sure. of customer that I think is largely, this this is going to be targeting, again, as a particular customer, likely of a particular mean, like means, they have a certain kind mm-hmm. of means, um, that is like, yeah, wants to do the feel-good thing, and I don't know that Barnes & Noble completely satisfies that for people for a variety of reasons. Um, I got a lot of feedback that like, hey, when I go into Barnes & Noble, it feels like the people that I'm talking to aren't even necessarily like really readers and like don't know what I'm talking about. or I mean, they've, they've had their their issues, and I think they're trying to work on that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think there is that piece that's like the people that are like, no, I don't want to shout, but Amazon are looking for the feel good. And I don't think Barnes and Noble satisfies that for that particular person, (laughs) like the big corporate, you know, mired in controversy, et cetera. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then as far as whether the bookstore is concerned about the middleman thing, I will um, say that they, 
this is like public knowledge, but uh, the owner of the store before he ever worked for the store worked and does continue to work for Ingram. <laughs> so mm. um, he's kind of, and he had nothing to do with any of this. He's just like, okay, <laughs> you know, like this is happening. So right. I, he has a pretty intimate um, familiarity with said middleman as far as like the Ingram mm-hmm. part of that is concerned. And I don't think they're concerned though, because in their mind, it's just like, Hey, if it, if it's a, you know, one, two, three, five, ten 10 customers a month that like, otherwise I wouldn't have, shopped at an indie, let alone mine, like, I think we'll take that, even if it means that there is a yeah. middleman. At least at least for now. This is all obviously so kind of, like, in the cloud sure. and in its nascent stages, but that's the perspective I get right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, if it's free money, it's free money, right? Like, if I wasn't going to get this, what am I worried about? Um, yeah, especially since you don't have to sacrifice it. your own indie platform. Like, you can still have yours. So, like, if there is, for those people that do like to shop, with your own website, you can still keep that. It's just kind of like another thing. And it seems like the barrier to entry is pretty low. So I, yeah, you know, okay. Like why not? All right. Well, we're still got three months um, before it comes out. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what, if anything could change. I'm just so interested to see, I'm going to definitely try buying some stuff through it um, and see how it works. Cause I, I want to see the packaging. Me too. I'm just curious about the whole uh, kitten caboodle um, there. All right, let's see. Uh, let, let's do. Uh, are, is this one going to be a long one? Do you think? The hundred <laughs> best books of the century. It might be. Let's go ahead and do a sponsor before we get into it, just, just in case. Okay. The Guardian has a list of the hundred best books of the century so far, which I guess you know nineteen is a nice round number to do this. I guess I, I, I'm not really sure why we're doing this. Sure. And I thought it. It's you know a fun episode. Uh, to, to talk about, um, I don't know what to do with this list. I, I was interested in it. I read it and was left feeling like, okay, okay. Uh, that's about as, uh, he, I thought I might get more heated up about it, but I found myself just kind of going, okay. Um, before we look at some specific ones, if anything jumped out to you, what did you think of the list uh, writ large? If you had recorded the noises that I made while perusing <laughs> this the other day, they would have gone from like, Mm, to like oh to okay like and it kind of just went from there I will Mm. say it is you know more diverse than I expected it to be and there was a lot of stuff on there that I was like oh interesting choice so like I don't hate it by any means some of it and I don't know if we're ready to get into the minutiae of the list here but yeah well I guess that's one that's one thing that four or five years ago in the earlier days of this show it would have been entirely possible for a list like this to come out. It would be like 95% white people. Yep. It, the, and that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, it is interesting that it's worth noting, I think, that this list is, I didn't have, to, I didn't do a count because I didn't feel like the need to do a count. Um, but you could see by just browsing it yeah. that there were people of color, there are women, there's some translated works, there's, you know, I didn't have to genre. look up last names. It was like very yes. obvious to me. Like, yes, yep, this yes, is a yes. diverse, or you know, more than like the Guardian might have been at some point in particular. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's something the Guardian gets credit for. I think that's something that book culture writ large maybe gets credit for. For sure, the conversation has moved um, to some degree. Like the table stakes of what's reasonable is just different uh, than it was. I thought it was interesting that this was a mix of there's nonfiction, there's some comics, there's translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much my would have been that different. 
Um, how do you want to? How do you want to eat this particular elephant? <laughs> um, we, we're not going to do a, one, a hundred through one, but what, no. what do you want? What do you want? What part? Of, do you want? What ear do you want to bite off and, and uh, chew on for a second? The first part that I that immediately struck me, and not that I, I don't know. You know, you can share your thoughts with me because I don't know that this is wrong. But I was a little bit surprised, for better or worse, to see that there were some really new titles on yeah, the list right, that have right. not stood any kind of a test of any kind of time. I was specifically mm. looking at um, the driver plow the bones of the dead, the Olga Tokarczuk, yes. which technically the translated version came out this year. It did I think come out in 2018 mm-hmm. in probably you know Poland and Europe? Um, I love Robert McFarlane's Underland, but that sucker came out a few months ago. <laughs> like, yeah, there were a couple that I was like, oh, like, and not, not that that's a bad thing. I think they're excellent books, but I don't know that if you had sat me down and said, can you make a list of the hundred best books of the century that I would have picked things that are that new and that haven't really like simmered <laughs> for very long. Yeah. I don't know your thoughts? Well, maybe that's that's one. I used to do a list every now and again, and maybe I should come back and do it for the site of the 100 best books of the last century. But I, and the caveat was there that the last century started 20 years ago for practical purposes. Because I said, I need 20 years sure. of buffer to get away from a thing. So you couldn't do that list with that because you'd be you starting in you know 1999. You could do 18. I could do 1899 to 1999 and feel good about that. So by my own external principle, I would include zero of these books because they all <laughs> happen after 2000. <laughs> so I you know I I maybe even more stringent. But yeah, I, I think that's part of the fun of the list too. Like I think the highest ranking one, well, or the one that I noticed that had a high ranking and a recent pub date was number 25, Normal People by Sally Rooney. Yep, there you go. The that's another before. one. I was like, wow, top 25, and it's been out in the U.S. like maybe eight months. I think in the in the U.K. it came out a little bit earlier. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's certainly compared to something like, you know, scrolling down the list a little bit. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, my, our beloved Gilead, which came in at number two. I know. I was going to like oh, overall. <laughs> message you at some obscene hour. <laughs> yes, which is 2004. So it gets a full 14 years longer um, to simmer. I, you know, if you're going to say the last 19 years of fair play, everything's eligible, what you think is best goes, I guess that's fine. Um, I would probably think the longer something's been out, the higher the likelihood that it'll appear on this list in another 19 years um, when you come back to it. But um, I'm not sure about the yeah, Gilead, uh, Marilyn Robinson, 2004 was number two. I guess it's worth saying number one overall. Everyone's wondering. It's like, Jesus, Vanessa and Jeff, just give it, just, just, <laughs> give just it to me. me like an adult and tell me what the lead is. Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, 2009. So kind of right in the middle yeah. of the, the time frame. I could get behind that pick. Probably not my favorite book. I know a lot of people admire it. I really liked it. It's formally impressive. It's about something that happened a billion years ago. So, I, you know, I'm not sure how much contemporariness of theme and content and context matters. Um, but that, it's certainly an admirable choice. Um, notable in the top four, um, Svetlana Aleksevich's secondhand time. She won the Nobel Prize a couple years ago, a Belarusian. I haven't read any of her work. Have you? Do you know? No, if, I haven't. Aleksevich, I know. Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, number four. Austerlitz by W.G. Seabald, um, number five. The Amber Spyglass, um, number six in 2000. So right on the edge of being old, but also, importantly, YA and genre yeah. to crack the top ten. Um, Between the World and Me, Taniasi Coates, number seven. Autumn by Ali Smith, 2016. Boy, talk about a forgettable literary fiction title for me. I read it. I thought it was fine, but 
top 10, just zero chance I would ever, I wouldn't even consider it for a list like this, even top 100. Uh, Cloud Atlas, David Mitchell, 2004, the kind of book I thought might be a contender for number one, formerly inventive, respected author, been out for a while, um, sells very well. And then Half a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda, rounding out the top 10. I just call her by her first name now. We're tight like that. Um, Thoughts on the top 10? I have, yeah, Autumn is one that I would like, if you had made me bet money, I would have lost hard. It just seemed very like, I actually did read part of it and then kind of forgot like, and, and that's no shade, you know, if you enjoyed it, that's great, but it just didn't stick out to me as anything that moved me yeah. enough to put it on any kind of real list. Mm-hmm. Um, Between the world and me, I totally understand that one. I think it's interesting that books like Amber Spyglass and, you know, higher up on that list, um, I think it's, is it Goblet of Fire that like specific books from the series yes, right. made yeah, yeah, like yeah, the yeah, crack, yeah. Um, not the whole franchise, but just, just the specific one. So I, I do like that it includes, like you said, genre and YA. It is a little just disjointed to me, and I know that's not the point of this list, but yeah, it's so interesting to see something like Tanahasi Coates next to a Harry Potter and a. They just feel so different for me. My, mm-hmm. I don't know that my brain works and I'm like, let's stick this all together in one big right. list. And Wolf Hall, I mean, I've been meaning to read that for years. I don't think I would have guessed it. Not that I disagree with it. I just, I don't. I don't know that I would have guessed. Well, not many people read that book. It's pro- I yeah. mean, it's 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 probably. I mean, outside of the um, Svetlana Alexievich's giant oral history of the end of the Soviet <laughs> Union, which is a tough hang. Yep. To use my parlance, that is a very tough <laughs> it hang. Is. Um, Wolf Hall is a very tough hang, um, and people don't get through it for reasons that I totally understand. It's literally next to me here on the shelf, and it has yeah, been in that same huge. place for I don't know. And how it's long. hard to read. It's just it's tough. It. I think one thing that stuck out to me is I like the disjointedness of it, and I, I agree feeling the disjointedness. But I also feel like it represents how people who care about books tend to read. No, that's a good point. Like you know this this represents not these books necessarily, but the spread of reading that I do. I do some YA, I do some genre, I do some. So none of these books are completely out of left field. I heard, I think I heard of every single one of them, which is interesting. There's some that I'm like, really? The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon, 2003. Like that sells as a paperback favorite. Autistic narrator. Maybe I, I, I tend to discount like the book club favorite paperback section. Yeah. And maybe it's unfair of me but that's when i was like really that one is pretty good it felt kind of gimmicky but then you look at life after life which is right after it is also kind of gimmicky too it's a time travel story it tells the same story again and again <laughs> i is, totally thought you were hard. talking about um <laughs> the other yanagahara book and i was like that is oh, not gimmicky in the least <laughs> that is not gimmicky at all <laughs> which is also no, no, i think on gimmicky. the list right <laughs> yeah sapiens yeah number 21 is coming right after mm-hmm. it and then you know, I, I think it's if there's interesting things here. Um, I thought that the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead might be higher. It's thirty. Yeah, same. Um, I, if you would have asked me to guess my top ten, I think I would have had Underground Railroad probably guessed up there. I would have guessed Cloud Atlas higher up there. Um, I think just because of affection people have Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, I think I would have had up there as well. I thought Emperor of the um, All Melodies would have trended higher. I don't know. That yeah, it's not like even a, close to the the highest no, nonfiction. It's like 30s, um, I think. 30s or yeah, 40s? Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, I, it's... The other thing, too, 
and maybe it's because you know, 19 years, and I'm you know, I'm 41 years old. So the difference between me being 20 and 41, things I read at 20 and things I read at 41, they feel like they're like the difference between like Jurassic Park and like um, the Victorian era. It just feels like completely different oh, historical eras to me. So yeah, I think that's one thing that was brought out to me. It's like 19 years ago can feel like a long time ago, like Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, which is a book I really liked, I've liked for a long time, came out in 2000. If, that feels like it came out in like 1984. <laughs> it might as well have come out in 1984. <laughs> it, it feels like it's so ago. long ago. Um, so there's that. Um, it's also, I, I guess it should say, it's a Guardian piece, so there's probably more British authors than the New York Times' list. For sure. No, absolutely. Uh, have um, by, by No Stretch of the Imagination. Any anything that you're just like scandalized to see included? I don't know if scandalized is the right word, but I I was surprised to see Gone Girl, and it makes sense why it's on there. Like it was yeah. a moment. I think it might just have to do with where the place of it is on this list. Where I was like, yeah, where is it? I lost. Track it's of like it. in the '60s. I remember seeing like Constant mm. Gardner. I think the Pat Barker, uh, mm. Silence of the Girls, um, and then like. That well, then it was back to back. It was that in like Stephen King, and then like the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and so there was a piece of me right. that was like, ah, I thought it was interesting that Silence of the Girls made it on here, but Madeline Miller's Circe didn't. Mm. In the mm. sense that if mm. you're talking about a book that was a moment, and I love Silence of the Girls, I love really all things mythology, but I would have bet money that Circe would have made it on here, or maybe even Song of a Kill. I don't know, and maybe that's my American perspective, but I was surprised to see one and not the other. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know the one I was really surprised not to see on here? And maybe I glanced over it, but um, Nausgaard wasn't on here, was he? No, he is. He yeah. is. Darn it. Yeah, yeah. No, I... Well, not darn it. I, I, I missed that. <laughs> no, yeah. I think my brain, I, I have um, slight aphasias whenever I see the name, so I probably just skipped right over it. Um, yeah, that was the one I was going to say. A couple of uh, faves that I was thrilled to see. Priest Daddy at 87. Oh, my gosh. By Patricia Lockwood. I was I was shocked and thrilled. Um, I was so surprised, that. and I same. I love that book, but I was like, okay, and it's you know it's at the yeah. top, it's towards the top of the list, but it made it, and that was pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Um, when Breath Becomes Air, I mean, some of these big nonfiction titles that people love were on there. Educated by Tara Westover, I yeah. thought um, might be on here. Malcolm Gladwell snuck on, yeah, <laughs> uh, the tipping point at like eighty, you know, ninety six or something like 94. that. Ninety four. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. 2000 so one. i guess you have that one you could have picked from half-blood prince or deathly hollows um or or, or order phoenix too um interesting that of those four i'm not are you enough of a potterhead to know what the potterheads generally consider the best of the books are i'm a giant potterhead um yeah. and even so i don't know i guess what general consensus i, I guess really any of those you could have picked because I think it's when they, the books sort of started to take a little bit of a different turn. Yeah, um, right. I w- would definitely have chosen five, six, or seven, so either Order of Phoenix, Half-Blood Prince, or um, Deathly yeah. Hallows, but there is a certain whimsy and like fun and the whole like international competition. That, yeah, so I mean, I, I can yeah. see it. I d- it wouldn't have been my first pick, but the more I ruminate on it, it makes sense. I think I would have picked six Half-Blood Prince yeah. myself. Um Packs the biggest, even bigger than seven, a biggest emotional wallop for me personally. Oh, for sure. Um, I think the thing about Goblet of Fire that's admir- my my family and I have been slowly re- listening to the audiobooks together, and we're in the middle of, well, towards the end of Order of the Phoenix. Now, the thing that Goblet of Fire does well is it makes the turn to 
um, S is getting real in this. Series. Oh, for sure. That's it, you know, absolutely. it goes from fun. It's just a tournament to now S is real. What I think is difficult to do, and really, the series' future history depended on doing that elegantly, and I think it really does. So for that alone. I'm very much okay with seeing that one picked here. Oh yeah, they um, definitely went like, oh, people going to die. <laughs> like in this yeah, yeah. It, oh, oh, this is this is not waving sticks around in, in cloaks um, necessarily only. Um, yeah, I guess you know. I thought maybe I'd see H's for Hawk on here just because it's a personal favorite and a British author and things like that. Oh, I forget um, that she's British. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess. I guess that's it. I, I guess my my biggest reaction, my biggest thought is how little of a reaction I had to it. Yeah, which I guess is, I read that as is that good. I read is that, that as good, good? Is it, because I yeah, wasn't okay. incensed, which I sometimes feel about these big comprehensive lists. Because again, there was a point at which they would have been incredibly whitewashed and non-diverse, and the fact that there was enough there to keep my little oohs and ahs like, eh, oh, okay, okay, you know, that kept me mm-hmm. going. And then when I finished, I didn't feel angry, and that is a departure. <laughs> so I guess that's yeah. good. Right. I mean, I guess you shouldn't be surprised to look in the mirror, right? You should be sort of ready for what you're going to see there. And I feel like this is a little bit like, if it's a good list, it's reflecting back on us kind of what the last 19 year of books have been about. And I guess we're really talking, we're not talking about art writing, we're not talking about academic writing. This is big publishing, usually traditionally published with some smaller, you know, no, was there any poetry? I don't see any poetry. I literally am scanning to look for that very thing. Yeah. Um... I don't think I saw any. Um, I don't think so either. Anyway, yeah, and, and it does. It, it is also shocking too that these big books that you know, like um, what was the one I was just looking at? Oh, I just blanked on it. Oh, my brilliant friend. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> the Ferrante is a big deal, but the way publishing works is like you have such gaps between books that it doesn't work like movies or TV shows or sports where the cycles between someone being back in your life as an author or athlete or artist, the cycles in writing are just so you can't cover books like sports because it's been what it was six years between a visit from the goon squad in Manhattan beach for Jennifer Egan. It's just, you've got to re you've got to redo the cycle all over again. Um, except for, genre writers, which then you have the opposite problem was like, <laughs> which James Patterson book are we on now? I mean, you kind of lose track of it yeah. too. So it, it is just a strange to see that even something like Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, it was relevant at the time, but then it takes a while for another book to, to come, come out. Yeah. And now it's, suddenly it's 13 years later. God, I love The Emperor of All Maladies, number 32. Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. That one I would have guessed um, for sure. Yeah, Osgard. Oh, Claudia Osgard. Rankine is on this list. Oh, no, that, that Citizen is, is it prose? No, no, that's poetry. Yeah, I was like, I'm wait, I was sure, trying right? to remember. I'm like, I, it's been a while since I read that. Citizen, but. yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Um, so anyway, check that out. Let us know what you think um, uh, about that one in particular. Okay. So that took a long time, but not too long. Um, speaking of libraries and things, um, one nice thing about digital collections is hard to get a late fee. Because they just take the book from your Libby app. Not that this ever happens to me. <laughs> Bye-bye. Just gone. <laughs> Bye-bye. Um, the case for eliminating fines on overdue library books. Chicago Public Library has become the largest system to eliminate late fees. We've talked about the story on and off over the last couple of years. There's been some sort of forgiveness days, some smaller systems getting away fines, some, I don't want to say hand-wringing, but people, it's a change to the status quo. And of course, libraries are part of state, you know, local governments and bureaucracies have their own institutional knowledge and um, best practices, and the overdue library fine is going away in Chicago. 
Yeah. All currently outstanding fees um, are being wiped away, Fight Club style, right? We blew up, and the credit history's gone. 343,000 Chicagoland cardholders currently ha- or did have borrowing privileges revoked for recurring at least $10 unpaid fines. So almost half a million people weren't yep. be able to use their library card because of 10 bucks in fines. Yep. That number blew me away. Same. I have to say, totally blew me away. Um, its own data revealed, the link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen, its own data revealed that one in three cardholders in the public library South District where many of the communities are of color and living in poverty cannot check out books. I think that's the lead right there. One in three. 100%. They can't cover a $10 fan. That, that is the reason enough. I don't care everything else. Um, as for comparison, one in six people in the wealthier Northern District, um, it's likely that many people have unpaid fines fail to pay them because they don't have the disposable income to do so. I'm glad this is happening. I'm thrilled that it's happening. Um, I guess I hope we'll see some discourse in a year's time from the Chicago Library. Like, are people, are people using the library more? Um, are they yep. losing the, – the big fear is they lose pieces of the collection, right? Because people mm-hmm. don't bring them back and they get library funds. Does it actually happen? Does it stay the same? Uh, I'll, I'll, I think that's really interesting to see. Um, the San Francisco Public Library reformed its overdue library overdue fine policy last month. Um, so that's a big one too. Um, I'm not sure what else to say except Chicago is feels like a big enough city where you could, if you're a smaller city, you could really fly in the coattails and use that as cover. Well, if it's good enough, Chicago, they've done the work. Yep. We could do for this as well. Anything else jump to you? Jump out to you about this? No, I'm just so happy to see it for everything you just said. I have again grown up in libraries, and for the exact reasons that they just said, there's so many people that have not. And I think even Rebecca and you all talked about this like yes. forever ago. Where Rebecca, who again is of the means, where like it's not necessarily mm-hmm. that it's the cause, but just because life gets busy and you forget, and the book just sits there and it sits there, and then it's like, oh, I have these fines, and now I just like haven't gone back to my local library because of the shame. And yes. so that's that's that we have the means to pay it. I have personally witnessed and like translated for families who are like, oh, do you know if they're going to let me use my library because, you know, we owe because we couldn't get here because the bus schedule was off. And like all of those. We've all heard those stories. Yes. Like do yes, away yes, with yes. all of that. Make it easier. Just just go away. And I've I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I've heard from multiple librarians that like the fines it, it sounds like a lot when you say, hey, you know, all, almost half a million people have these, like, fines, and mm-hmm. that's what they couldn't. But apparently the collection rate on that stuff anyway has just never been great, so it's not a formidable yes. enough source of income for the library. Like, it's it's restrictive. It makes people not come back to the library. We don't collect on it. We don't make money. It's bad feels. Let's just get away with it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, and even just the apparatus to pay payment processing and, you know, doing all this stuff mm-hmm. – that it would take to enforce the fines, keep track of them. You know, you lose overhead if you can get rid of some of that stuff. Yeah. It says, so far, no library has reported large-scale negative consequence consequences to going fine-free. I'm sure there will be some people who abuse it because if you have a system that people can use, some people abuse it. But certainly the consequences will not be worse than a half a million people not using their library exactly. because they got 10 bucks in fees. Um, like San Diego so. did away with their fee. I don't know if both systems. I know the public library system did away with it. 
And yeah. not only I, I didn't read this in the article, if I missed it, my bad. But um, not only did, did the fees go away, but essentially it just auto renews the book up to, mm. I think, let's say five times. Um, and so there's not even really that sense of like your book is overdue. It's kind of just like, okay, we're going to give you X many shots. And only at the very end, could will they maybe like put a hold on your account? If there's no fee attached mm. to it. You just kind of have to like go turn on your book. But right. all of that together, and just I, I just think it's going to work for the, the positive. At least I, I hope that's the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here in Chicago, it says that the system collects $875,000 annually in fines, which is not an insignificant amount, but the city says late fines constitute less than 1% of the library's total budget. So ha, there well, you go. Hey. <laughs> that, seems like, that seems like a pretty good return in good feeling and access. Um, to do that too. I've wondered too, this says as of 2017, 92% of public libraries charged a late fee. I wonder if anyone has tried or has done a, um, I don't know, a situation where there's like a sliding scale. Like if you get, if you get public assistance, maybe you hmm. don't have late fees, but if like, I know a lot of places don't charge it on like teen and kidlet. Yeah. Kids books. Yeah. yeah. If you have a, a kid with a library card, I don't think in Portland can get late fees, okay. and so then parents use their kids' library cards. Shame on you, shame on you, shame <laughs> on you. Though I thought about it. Um, kind well, of. Yes, my daughter cool. is reading educated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She wants an well, early yes, start. Yeah, my nine-year-old is reading a little life. It is going to go fine. Um, but, but that seems like, you know, if, you want, if you're looking for a middle way, um, that might be one, but it sounds like maybe the simple thing is for less than 1% of your library's budget, you can get rid of fines. Wow. That, that seems like it would be really something to think about too. And mm-hmm. as, as things go more and more digital, keeping track of physical media is less and less of the game. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, as well, audiobook listenership. Look at that segue that I didn't even mean to do, but, but uh, somehow uh, happened anyway. One in, according to Pew Research... One in five Americans now listen to audiobooks, which is up a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot. Since 2015, that's up from 12% to 20%. So it says, oh, okay, 8%, but it's really effectively double or almost double at 11% going back to 2011. Um, even in the last three years, so 2016, 2019, gone from 14% to 6%. So one out of eight people, or excuse me, that's I'm doing the wrong way. <laughs> I was like, mm, math. <laughs> well, the math is not so one out of six, um, or six percent. Pardon me. You know, you're looking at one out of twenty-ish people have picked up an audiobook who weren't picking up one three years ago. Yep. Um, read a print book has stayed very stable since 2015. Yeah, that doesn't move much. <laughs> doesn't move much. It's down from 71 percent in 2011 to 65 percent in 2019. I keep meaning to write a longer piece on why aren't fewer people reading books? Like, go the other way, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing is like, oh, reading. But considering what we have available to us for entertainment or education that we didn't have seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, the resilience of print reading and audiobook reading and ebook reading is kind of, it really is kind of remarkable. Like, it is. you could have told me it's much worse. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. You can stream Netflix 24 hours a day, listen to whatever you want on Spotify. Um, go, you know, get movies and play video. (laughs) It's all there all the time. And still 65% of people, uh, read a print book in the last year. Um, 72% have read a book in any format 
which is only down 2% since 2012, which is really, really interesting. I thought it was wild that the poll headline for this was one in five Americans now listen to audiobooks. That, that they thought was the most interesting stat. Is that the most interesting stat to you in this research study? It's a, it's a, one, it's a longer, you know, there's all kinds of stuff here, but that's the one they decided was the most important thing. I guess maybe, but I'm not sure what else to do with it. I like could be extrapolating here, <laughs> but yeah. so if you hover, like if, if you have, you know, the link open like I do and you hover over like the little teeny preview version on your tab, yes. it says like, you know, one in five people listen to audiobooks, but print is still the most popular. And like, mm. obviously that's a valid statistic, but I, I sometimes wonder if there is just, <laughs> if the piece may have been written from the perspective of a person who's like, well, gosh dang, people really do like these audiobook things, and that's why yeah, they led right. with that, like where there is still, and there is still a huge segment of the population that will come at you, bro, with the like, it's not reading, or, you know, mm-hmm. rah, 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 rah. and so I think for that sect of the population, this is probably a really interesting statistic, and not that it's not interesting, it's just to me, like you said, the persistence of print reading, to me, in light of, like you said, the, act, the yeah. like infinite access you have to so many other things and the digital thing like it wow this people are still reading like cool <laughs> so that, i know yeah. that could be me judging this person but right yeah it, i mean i guess if you're gonna if you're not following the audiobook story like that you know people are listening to audiobooks you yourself are not listening to audiobooks that one in five americans listened to an audiobook last year might seem high to you because uh, it still has the stigma in some circles of being like you're listening to Louis L'Amour on a 30 no, really. CD set in your truck. Um, I get asked that so. all the time. Like, again, it's very <laughs> easy to think because we're so enmeshed in the book life that, like, everybody knows about Libby. Everybody knows about Audible. Everybody knows about Libro FM, like, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Whereas I absolutely still encounter people in my family, in my everyday life that are like, so wait, do you just, like, walk around with CDs all the time? Like, yes, yes. I bust out my disc, man. Like, no, there's there's ways to do it now. And I, yeah, so for for those people, <laughs> I think people are like, yeah. oh, it's that easy? Yes, it is. Let me tell you about it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, the other story that the that everyone likes to slag on ebooks, right? Ebooks are unsexy. They're not doing very well. People hate them. That's the the publishing industry story before reasons that I think are motivated reasoning for a variety of factors. It is down over the last few years from 28% to 25%. Yeah. Flat basically since 2012, from 23 to 25%. Still, meaningfully more people read an ebook last year than listened to an audiobook. Mm-hmm. There are probably reasons for that. We could get into price being one, self-publishing, diversity of titles, availability of titles, so on and so forth. Um, but even even now, even after the ascendance of audiobooks and the, I don't know, cratering of interest and excitement around ebooks, ebooks still come out meaningfully ahead, which is interesting. Um, pie chart of the spread of how people are reading. So 37% of people read only print, 27% of people read nothing, no books at all. Only 7% of people are reading digital only, and then 28% are reading both print and digital. I feel like I should have something more interesting to say about that pie chart, but I don't, which is shocking for me who will talk about anything without being completely informed about I guess, does that number... I mean, you're an independent bookseller, so you're probably not as surprised that 37% of people only read print still. What, does that number see higher or low to you? I guess that's a it better way It seems right about on for me, and I don't know. Again, I, I will fully disclose, again, neighborhood that I worked in was not yes. only gentrified, but like a little on the hipster side. 
And mm. I mean, we, the businesses in the area include like a record shop that is thriving. That's only been open for like a little bit of time. And this really cool, like old timey barber shop. Like there's a little bit of that, um, return to analog, like mysticism <laughs> yeah. going on there where, right. and so that doesn't surprise me. And I'm the same, like I used to do a lot more ebook consumption in my life and for reasons that I can't. And, and some of it, yeah, is, um, you know, I guess value based in the sense that I just don't initially when I kind of made a little bit of the cut from Amazon, but there's other places to get eBooks. Like I have yeah. other accounts and for whatever reason, unless it's a galley and it wasn't, I promise a, so, a, like a purposeful decision. It was just kind of like I started to gravitate towards print again. And so it's either mm. print or audio. <laughs> and so print or audio. Yeah, that's yeah, basically what, and again, e-galleys because I got it, but I had to like literally mm-hmm. like dust off the, on my iPad when <laughs> that became a bigger thing. Um, so it doesn't surprise me, but that's in yeah. my world. In 10 years, if you had to guess which of those pie pieces will be smaller and larger, what would your guess be? See, if you'd asked me this like a few years ago when ebooks were first, like, ah, I would have absolutely told you, yeah, that the that ebook is going to get bigger and bigger and the physical is going to yeah. get smaller. And then now, again, I don't know if it's because of my bubble. Or, you know, not to get you started on like an ebook pricing rant, mm. but all, all of those things combined, I, I don't know. I, I almost could see it staying somewhat the yeah, same. Right. There's always going to be that part of the population that's just like, no, I want a physical. And then there's the other half that doesn't. And the, I, I don't I don't know if it's going to change all that. If it hasn't already, I guess. Yeah. Like, right. is it going to – I think maybe audiobooks will continue to go up if I had to guess. Cause. And if that's the case, then that both print and digital should be the one that grows. Yeah. Because some of those print books only people, if that line continues up, are going to mix in some audiobooks, which are effectively digital true. books. Yeah, yeah right? that's true. They're not going to get CDs yeah, yeah. on them. Um, so I guess that would be the one both print and digital is 28% right now. That makes the most sense to me to get bigger. I guess – if you look at the trend line, that that twenty seven percent no books will probably get a couple percentage points bigger yeah. over ten years as other things happening. But then there was a statistic the di- in there. I think it's about college. Is it college grads or college students? It's like at the very end. I want to say that says I'm trying to find it. But I think like among them, for example, the audiobook or maybe digital was like in the thirties already. So yeah, some yeah, of it is just tide. like yeah. yeah, like hey, th- there's still a giant portion of our population that is altogether like technology. Not a verse, mm-hmm. but maybe like whereas maybe but we still get people maybe. in the bookstore used to like at least once a month. It's like, do you have the audiobook of so and so? And you're like, yeah, let me introduce you to Libro. And they're like, no, 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 the CD. So as that wow. starts to like phase out, yeah, I don't think you want to pick up um, Wolf Hall on vinyl. That's a rough. It's <laughs> a rough one. Let me just change this seventeen times. Like no. Let's mop up with a couple of smaller, I guess, individual title news things. Um, speaking of old books, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell came out, I don't know, 1841, I feel like at this point is when this book came out. No, what was it? 11 years ago? Or 14? Yeah, 2005, six, which I love this book. Um, and it sold and it would, it was a beautiful on the shelf and it's a little ahead of its time for adult fantasy, I feel like, um, even then. And, um... Susanna Clark, the British author who wrote it, hasn't had another book out for 16 years, and her new book is coming out next year. It's not in the same series. Um, it came out as a two-book deal, and apparently she got a bunch of money for it. Okay. Um, 
Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was more than a thousand pages, and it was adapted into a pretty good series a few years ago. And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for another novel, um, and it's finally coming out now. And I'm excited enough just to talk about that. Um, is this a book you know, Vanessa? I the original. Like if I if you describe this to me, like this is the like white hot center of my wheelhouse, and yet I was young Unaware. much younger you well i was younger yes. when it came out i, I knew it was mm-hmm. out but i promise like i the vivid the memory is very vivid like i remember thinking i'm gonna go buy that and then i was very very deep into my like book challenge days at the time where like it was mm. all about the number of books i was reading which is dumb and i walked to the bookstore i grabbed the book i picked it up realized it is a weapon of a book oh it's huge it's a giant book and then just kind of quietly put it back on the show. <laughs> it's it's everything I want in a book as far as the plot premise. It's like magic is going away. It's like 19th century. Ink. Like it's it, th- Those are the things I love. And I've never picked it back up because it is just mm. such a meaty sucker. But I might now. <laughs> I, I, it might be worth before the next book comes out to do a bonus episode on Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell because it does feel like I'd, I'd love to know if it holds up. I wonder if people are excited about. It. Let me know podcastofbookwrite.com if you read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and or are excited for Susanna Clark's new book. I thought we might never get another one of these. You know, sixteen at some point you're like we're just not going to get sixteen one. years um, is enough to be like is a a good long run. Um, apparently, uh, Johnny Geller is her agent, and he's a big time British agent, like a serious power mocker in the in the literary world. Um, so anyway, there, there we go. Um, Geller, I mean, he's a hype man as agents are. I never really believed a fully imagined world, a perfectly constructed novel would be just sitting there when he got Clark's manuscript. So, okay. I mean, really, it was a phenomenon in its time. Um, and I encourage you if it's Vanessa, go read it. Now that you're out of challenge land, not that you have any other reading to <laughs> do for work or anything None. <laughs> at all. Um, we can go check that out. And then, and then I, I love, a, I love this story. I don't, you know, I don't know if I've ever linked to page six, uh, in a, in a book riot podcast. Um, <laughs> when I episode. saw it, I was like, wait, what? And then I read the rest what, of it. What is yeah. this? <laughs> Dolly Parton has inked a book deal with an independent publisher. To chronicle books, mm-hmm. which is again, it's not a chronicles, not one person or, yeah. chronicles, <laughs> but it's not a big five. Um, she decided not to go with the major publisher because no major publishers were willing to part with audio rights, yep. and Dolly wanted a term license that could revert back to her in ten years. We don't really know what the book is. We don't know if it's a memoir, or whatever else it might be. Um, but I thought that was really interesting that she went to a smaller publisher because they would give her audio rights. Dolly does not screw around. No. She knows what she's doing. Uh, is there any bigger sign that audio is a hot deal than Dolly? That being the breaking point with Dolly Parton's um, book contract. That would be enough yeah. to get her to go with a smaller press. I thought this was fascinating. And she's, I mean, for anybody that doesn't, yet you know no it's like dolly has just does so much in the book world her was it yes. is it was it imagination library Ima- imagination yeah library, that she i mean just so much that. book gifting and i mean she i well yeah and it even says the piece like she was she had no shortage of people that were interested no in this deal and no. she legit was just like can i have the audio no okay bye <laughs> like okay well and not not even the audio right now no, it was in, in a decade years. yeah yeah fascinating to to look back on that now um, 
I'd love to know how she and her agent sort of what their what their spreadsheets looked like for that decision. Like they cared enough about it. Um, and maybe I guess the other thing to think about is if you're Dolly Parton, maybe you need less the publicity and marketing machine that a major a big five publisher I would assume, can provide. Yeah. Like you've kind of already like you, carved you, out your piece of the world. <laughs> yeah. You, Dolly doesn't need no big five publisher to get behind her. Big five publishers need her. So anyway, there's that. I think that's a show, Vanessa. We did it. <laughs> we talked about all sorts of things. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't bumble over anything. And I, it was a good yeah, one to you, be part you of. You almost got me going. You almost got me going on the ebook. You baited me. I have been listening for some time. I know what buttons <laughs> to press. I don't even see. Here's the thing. Okay, I'll get you out on this. <laughs> I don't even I don't even buy full priced ebooks anymore. I just don't. Yeah. I you know, Book Riot has its own really good deals newsletter, which I don't think you do. do I you, do. Do you do that sometimes? <laughs> I do. Oh, you do do yeah. that now. Not um, all the time, but yeah, I do it like three yeah, days a week. Yeah, split up. And I, I did it myself for a long time, so I know you know, if you're patient and you're willing to be a little flexible in your reading, you pick up an ebook for a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. And even if you don't know you're going to read it right then, you'll kind of build up. a. It's like your pantry. Mm -hmm. Get your staples in there. You have always something to go to. Um, Almost treat it like my Libby hold list where I'm just sort of banking stuff. You know, I spend $10 a month on eBooks and I pick up a few. And when I'm ready for something new, I see if I'm in the mood for any of those things. Rather than going out and shelling out $15.99 for a front list eBooks, which I can't do it. I I just can't do it anymore. I'm sorry, publishing world. I don't know if that's bad or wrong or whatever. But I can't pub- I can't sell out fifteen ninety nine for an ebook, especially can't with the veracity it. with which a lot of us read. It's like I'm spending it on someone that I know. Like if it's you know, like yeah, Aaron Morgan, sort whoever. Like I'm gonna, but like for the amount of books that I read, like I'm not gonna pay full price for an ebook. I'm just not. well, my Audible credit, you know, my Audible credit because I'm a membership yeah. and blah 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 is like twelve ninety five. Yeah. You get it on a deal, you buy a bundle. That seems worth it to me. Yeah, but and, I mean, um, I can use that bad boy for like a forty dollar e- or uh, audio book yes, if I feel right, like it. You right, know? So I'm like, right, hey, right, right, this right. is fine. <laughs> but somehow, somehow, the value proposition feels to me completely different. Um, and I guess that I know I can get a print copy from Am- <clears throat> I mean, somewhere anywhere for you 40% like, <laughs> of, anywhere I like. And then I get to have the print thing. I just can't do the fit. So I guess I guess my days of ranting are over because like, what am I going to, I'm ranting about something I don't do. <laughs> Hello, can I talk to you please about the thing I don't do no more? Thanks. <laughs> Remember that thing that I don't do anymore? I'm mad about it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just. Thank you for coming uh, to my what, sta- what stage? What stage of grief is this? I guess resig- <laughs> acceptance. <laughs> yeah, I've just sort of, I've moved on. Um, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> Vanessa, we'll have to have you back sometime. That was great. Uh, what what um what's your favorite bookish adaptation for a movie? Oh, I did a whole YouTube video on this for anyone who's interested in that I okay. love the bad ones. Like I don't care. I am one of those people that just really enjoys seeing what people do to put like mm. a book to page. Um so I actually just really though do love any of the Agatha Christie's. Like and they haven't all been cast well, but I'm a giant Agatha Ooh. Christie nerd and um mm. getting to see I didn't really appreciate what they did with Poirot in the last Watch the video. I rant yeah. about it a lot. What but. was what was Branna doing with that? I don't understand what his his thing was with that particular. I didn't mind for, the quirk. Portrayal. Like the quirk is fine. Like he is described as this like over the top fastidious borderline and not even borderline. Poirot's annoying, and that's fine, right. you know. But the, I don't know. This is like the dumbest thing to take a wish you with and finish this episode. But I just don't. He, to the best of my knowledge, unless I'm forgetting something from that giant catalog, it was never about a woman. 
And oh. they, at the very end of Murder on the Orient Express, threw in this, like, I'm the way that I am because of a lady friend. And I'm like, oh, mm. no, no. And that <laughs> that I didn't care for. Is there generally, like, what's the best Christie adaptation? There's not, like, I can't think of what the generally... I Is there one that rise to the level outside of a genre? Like some, I don't think I so. Think I think a lot of the ones yeah. that I'm thinking of are like, yeah, like arcane, like BBC. <laughs> like, yeah. There's, right. I, which I haven't seen because I think it's only on Prime. Like there's another one with, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Um, John Malkovich. Dude. Oh, um, dude. Playing Perot? No, uh, he's from oh. another one of the the characters. Gotcha. But um, in general, I mean, as far as like if you're talking TV adaptations, I love Miss Marple. <laughs> Like, I love yeah. – I've seen it so many times. Yeah. All right. Everyone, you can go to bookride.com slash listen to find show notes to this and all episodes of the Book Ride podcast. And, you know, go check out our other podcasts. There's a bunch there. Vanessa's even on some of them. Um, email me a podcast at bookride.com for whatever reasons you might want. I don't even remember what I asked you for this time. Um, and, oh, if you want to get on it, tomorrow night – Tomorrow, Rebecca and I are recording our Shawshank Redemption episode, which will be coming out next week, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So if you wanted to do a little rewatch before that came out, the, also the novella is 100-ish pages. It's quicker to read the book for me than to watch the movie it is. again, yep. uh, weirdly. Um, so if you want to get on that before that comes out, go do that. God, I love that movie. Uh. Great one. Vanessa, talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>